Hi, Freshhead listeners. It's Will here. This will be the last time that I ask for donations at the beginning of an episode, at least for this fundraising campaign. Like many of you, I prefer episodes that jump right into the conversation and aren't interrupted in any way. That's why we don't include ads in our show. But to keep Fresh Ed ad-free and free to all, we really need your help to ensure Fresh Ed remains financially viable. We've reached 15% of our goal thus far, so there's actually a long way to go. Whether you're a longtime listener or you've just found us, if you value Fresh Ed and have the means to do so, please go to freshedpodcast.com donate and make a contribution. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thank you, and now on with the show. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Shadow education is a phenomenon found worldwide. We can think of it as private supplementary tutoring. East Asia is often assumed to be the center of private tutoring. But like I said, it's actually a global phenomenon. So today, Mark Bray joins me to talk about shadow education in Africa. Mark Bray is the director of the Center for International Research in Supplementary Tutoring at East China Normal University in Shanghai, and UNESCO Chair in Comparative Education at the University of Hong Kong. His latest book is Shadow Education in Africa, Private Supplementary Tutoring and Its Policy Implications. Mark Bray, welcome back to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will. Pleasure to be here. So you've researched shadow education across the globe, really, and perhaps most notably in East and Southeast Asia, um, where you reside. When did you realize that you needed to actually turn your attention to the continent of Africa and what is happening with shadow education there? As you say, well, I've been looking at this for over 20 years. Uh, In fact, my first book, the first global study of this phenomenon, was published in 1999. It did have Africa in it. It had examples from Mauritius, from Tanzania, from Egypt, and so on. But it's true that uh, much of my work has been East Asia, Southeast Asia, and the world tends to think of Juku in Japan and Haguan in Korea. The world tends to think of it as more an East Asian phenomenon, which I don't think it is. I think now it is a global phenomenon. It's more and more a global phenomenon. Even in Scandinavia, we see it emerging. But uh, this Africa book is a response to an invitation from UNESCO's Global Education Monitoring Report, for which the... 2021 edition will focus on non-state actors in education. So this is a study uh, filling a bit of a, uh, a blank on the map to put Africa more in focus and to fit into the GEM reports focus on non-state actors in education. You've you've worked in and researched in different countries in Africa um for quite some time. When did you actually like, you know, first notice shadow education? Well, really, some time work in Africa. Uh, my early career, as you know, uh, was a school teacher in Kenya, later a school teacher in Nigeria. I have a master's in African studies. Then I did my PhD on 
universal primary education in Nigeria. Uh, after that, geographically, I got a bit diverted to Papua New Guinea, to Asia, etc. But I came back to it when I was director of UNESCO's IIEP, the International Institute for Educational Planning, uh, 2006 to 2010. So... Um, you ask when I noticed that it was a big thing in, in parts of Africa. Well, as I say, my 1999 book for IIP highlighted Tanzania, Mauritius, Cairo, uh, Egypt, etc. Um, but uh, the message of the book is also to be saying uh, clearly it needs a lot more attention throughout the continent and we need a bit more geographic balance here. It's not mm. just an East Asian or a South Asian phenomenon. It is Africa. It is also, by the way, North America and Europe and Latin America and so on. It is a global phenomenon. But in this particular book, I've chosen to focus uh, in liaison with the GEM report team only on Africa, but including the Arab states of North Africa as well as sub-Saharan Africa. And so what sort of patterns do you see across these different regions, let's say, of Africa? Well, North Africa has a long history, and Egypt in particular. Uh, the, the initial regulations of Egypt uh, on private tutoring, even coming in 1947, which is really early stuff, uh, and it's emerging as a big phenomenon in the 50s and the 60s, and still hasn't gone away. In Egypt, uh, I would say globally, we can say that uh, perhaps uh, Korea, Japan, they are the world champions, and uh, perhaps Greece is a European champion, Mauritius is an African champion, but Egypt is the uh, Arab region champion in this. <laughs> and so I've been aware of this as a phenomenon in Egypt for a long time, and by extension other parts of North Africa. Uh, Anglophone Africa, uh, different uh, certainly emerging in East Africa in a very visible way with regulations that may or may not work. Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, etc. West Africa, Nigeria, Ghana. Southern Africa, it hasn't been so visible a phenomenon, hmm. but we are seeing sharp increases in the statistics for South Africa and for Namibia and for Eswatini. So um, Anglophone Africa, as a collection, there is diversity within it. Francophone Africa, less obvious, but my hunch is that's just because people are not alert to the phenomenon and they're not collecting the statistics rather than that the phenomenon doesn't exist. Lusophone Africa, we do have data from Mozambique a little bit, Angola a little bit. We need data from all of these places a lot more. Yeah, I mean, so obviously we're limited to what we can talk about based on the data. But I mean, so in a place like Egypt, I was shocked to read in your book that it's something like, is it 1.8% of GDP is spent on shadow education? Or is, I mean, that that's shocking to me. It, it is a shocking number. I think it was 1.6%, but that's still almost the same thing. Unbelievable. Uh, uh, it's an estimate of 20 years ago, and it's looking at how much the households were spending, how much the Ministry of Education was spending. Households were spending, uh, estimated, between 12 and 15 billion Egyptian pounds, compared to the Ministry, 10 billion Egyptian pounds. So households were spending more than the Ministry. 
and whopping numbers there, and continuing whopping numbers, because the Egyptian government is hard-pressed, they've expanded education, they've expanded other sectors, budgets are constrained, so teachers in particular are the ones who are earning extra money in order to feed their families. You have to be sympathetic to the Egyptian teachers, they're not paid well, and shadow education is a way to earn extra money to feed the family. So, so you're saying in Egypt, it's the public school teachers who are also doing the tutoring after school hours? Uh, especially the public school teachers. Uh, there are tutorial centers and there is a private institutional uh, set of establishments as well, but especially the teachers. And I think that's what we're also seeing in places like Kenya and Tanzania and Nigeria and so on. It's, it's become a normal phenomenon in many parts of the continent. And why do you think that is? We can link it to the unanticipated consequences of universalization of primary education, the EFA movement, etc. Uh, we can link it to expansion of education, government budgets being constrained, therefore teachers' salaries being constrained, uh, civil service teacher tracks are no longer so strong. Many of these countries have got contract teachers. Uh, they don't earn good salaries. They need extra money for it. But it's also part of the global trend of marketization of education. It's internal privatization of education. It's become an acceptable thing to do. It is a normal life for Egyptian families, several generations now. Uh, other parts of the continent, it's only the first generation. But for Egyptians, uh, the parents had to go to shadow education, so they accept it as normal for their children. So it's a normalization of an internal privatization of the public systems. Hmm. And do you see any potential problems with such a normalization? Well, there are huge problems when we pretend that education is free and equitable and fair, and the hidden costs are whopping. Uh, and particularly, there are equity issues. The uh, well-endowed families can pay more for better shadow education, and the low-income families are excluded from it. So uh, it's under the radar, and the government may pretend that education is free, but it's not free. So there are huge equity implications in all of this. Hmm. What's interesting to me is that in, say, Egypt, but of course in other countries that you mentioned where this phenomenon of teachers who are also tutors exist, is that the, the households are spending such large uh, amount of money on schooling. And, and I just wonder, you know, if there were tax systems in place so to what extent are there tax systems in, say, Egypt or some of these other countries? And, you know, you know what would you make of that sort of uh, policy prescription? I completely agree that taxation can be an educational issue. And we don't hear enough about that. We hear people saying uh, X percent of the government budget should be spent on education. OK, but how big is the government budget? and where is the taxation money coming from. So I completely agree with you that we should be looking at taxation as a real issue. We should also be looking overall at GDP per capita. So within the book, I have got a map of GDP per capita. 
Uh, now, we don't completely see shadow education corresponding to the rich countries, but to some extent we do, uh, because we are also talking, uh, on the one hand, we're talking about teachers who give extra tutoring to earn enough money to feed their families, etc. On the other hand, we're also talking about entrepreneurs who open tutorial centers. That's happening especially in places like South Africa, more and more, where business people see opportunities here to marketize and to supplement the school system mm. to the extent to which uh, schooling ceases to be enough. And teachers, even if they're not themselves providing shadow education, assume that their students are receiving it. And then, since the teachers in their own teaching assume that their students are receiving all the supplementary help that they need it, then the students are forced to acquire it. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Hmm, hmm. It's, it's quite a dilemma for, say, a policymaker um, or a parent. I mean, I guess, you know, as a parent, you would just, it almost makes sense if you had the additional money to spend on tutoring that, you know, why wouldn't you do it, right? I mean, it's everyone else is doing it. You're going to potentially do better on exams that, that might help your child get further along in the, the education system. I agree with you, and that's also why many of these policies don't work, because the ministry may have a top-down prohibition of teachers doing this, thou shalt not provide private tutoring, but the parents want it, uh, particularly the parents who can afford it. And in a society where there is social stratification, insofar as education is seen as a vehicle still to move upwards, then parents who can afford it will go for this stuff and they go for it more actively than they used to. Now, this is itself linked to successes of EFA. The EFA agenda has had spin-off, unanticipated consequences. Uh, in the old days, when children may not have completed primary, may not have completed secondary, certainly didn't think of going to tertiary, uh, then there were push-outs and drop-outs along the way. The successes of EFA mean that people do complete primary, do complete secondary. They have the opportunity to go to tertiary in a way that they didn't before. So suddenly they're in the running for competition with their neighbors. And then the question is, well, how do I compete with my neighbors? And the answer mm. is through shadow education to keep ahead and do well on those exams. It's 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 a really nice insight, um, you know, that sort of the critique of EFA or education for all and some of the unintended consequences of, in a sense, massification of education on at so many levels. And, it, and I guess the rise of shadow education in a way really begins to challenge the very notion that education is some sort of great equalizer because ed shadow education now, in a sense, is acting as that sorting machine and helping different groups of people. And obviously it matches on to socioeconomic status and different classes of students sort of being reproduced and given more and better education based on what they can afford. And so, you know, I, I guess, you know, it, in a sense, it's, it's a bit shocking to think that education might not be as great of an equalizer as we had anticipated. 
That's certainly a major reason why the shadow needs to be looked at much more carefully. And there is, it's a hidden stratifier. Uh, in the worst types of cases, teachers who are tutoring their own students actively shortchange in their regular classes so that students will have to come to their private classes. Uh, now that is again where the haves and the have-nots are being divided even more. Um, so when you have got, in effect, a form of corruption where the teachers are deliberately under-teaching in class to say, well, come to my house at five o'clock and I'm running the tutoring there, and by the way, uh, perhaps I will give you some tips to the exam which I, as the teacher, am setting, uh, you've got a huge set of hidden inequalities within regular classrooms because of the shadow education. So returning back to Africa specifically, of course Africa also has a very long history of colonialism um, of, of different sorts in different countries. How has colonialism, sort of the legacies of colonialism, where do you see them in the types of shadow education that, that you observed today across Africa? I think we can see a clear difference between Francophone and Anglophone Africa in that sense. So still, 60 years later, we are talking about different attitudes to education and the role of the state. So in Anglophone Africa, the missions were much more active. One did have not-for-profit, usually not-for-profit private uh, actors, um, Kenya in the early years of independence then launched its Harambe movement in a big way, and the self-help initiatives. Uh, one has seen community schools across Africa, including in Francophone Africa. But I think the question about the role of the state continues to be viewed differently in Francophone Africa and Anglophone Africa, that the uh, Anglophone Africa, there are people who've looked at patterns of contract teachers and community employed teachers and so on. They are more likely to be found in Anglophone Africa than Francophone Africa. And I think um, one can also find then parallels in Lusophone Africa. There are still legacies which go with the language group, and the language group itself comes from the colonial history. Right. And it's interesting that you say these different colonial legacies can impact the way in which different countries might understand the state. But And so would that then connect to the way in which those countries understand non-state actors, right? Because shadow education sort of operates in that netherworld between non-state and state. It's sort of semi-state if you're a public school teacher also providing tutoring, for instance. Yes, semi-state, but that's why I'm glad that UNESCO's Global Education Monitoring Report, in its discussion of non-state actors, is looking at public school teachers behaving as private school teachers. In this case, yes, they have got their core salary and their job as a public school teacher, but their actions in the shadow are absolutely private. And I think that that's where we also need to review things like the Abidjan principles are very much about private schools and uh, that uh, public-private schooling dichotomy. But the shadow stuff is privatization within the public schools and it doesn't get enough attention, in my view, in the Abidjan principles 
and needs a lot more direct discussion about what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, in a sense, what you're saying is that it's not this sort of black or white. It's, I mean, private or public, but it's sort of both at the same time or maybe at different times because a tutor potentially isn't also being a public school teacher at the exact same moment. But they're, they might be doing it in the same exact classroom, just simply at a different time. They could even be doing it in the same exact classroom. Mm. The school bell rings at the end of the day and nobody moves. <laughs> that, or only a few people move. That The teacher uh, then says, OK, end of public schooling. Those of you who are paying the fees, now we're going to go to the private tutoring classes. Just trying to imagine myself being a teacher, you know, when that bell rings and you know, what happens psychologically or sort of socially when that bell rings and you have to change the sort of role that you play in in the school? I mean, it must be a very strange reality to have to live through every day. Well, well, I don't know if I'm allowed in this podcast to tell people to read your book, uh, <laughs> your book about uh, Cambodia and privatization and your own insights from watching a teacher in the public school lessons and then moving to the private lessons and how the dynamics are different and similar. Now that's Cambodia, it's not Africa, but absolutely some of these dynamics are the same in parts of Africa. And from that comes another lesson about uh, the role of schooling. Schooling is a universal phenomenon, the structure of schools, teachers, students, term time, vacation, blackboards, desks, uh, timetables, all the rest of it. That is universalized, but then uh, one sees different soils in which the plant has been located. So to some extent, even your valuable work on Cambodia has got links to some of these African countries that we're talking about. Well, thank you very much for, for plugging that. I mean, and I think that's what is so, looking so in depth in, in one particular context, and in my case, you know, one particular school, and just finding the connections not only across Cambodia, but then across the region, across the globe. It's, it raises interesting questions as to why this is happening now, right? I mean, th these are obviously interconnected phenomena in some way, even if they look different contextually. Um, and so EFA, colonialism, because obviously Cambodia had French colonialism. Um, are there other sort of, you know, reasons why you might or reasons why uh, shadow education might exist today that, that you've come across? We are increasingly in a globalized world where uh, information and money can be transferred at the click of a mouse. Um, so we are increasingly seeing that we are no longer in, in competition with our immediate neighbours. We're in competition with people across the country, across the continent, across the planet. So I think that globalisation has uh, an impact on some of this stuff. And so what we do know is that shadow education peaks at the time of the uh, examinations, the watershed examinations, especially at the end of secondary schooling. Now, it's then a question of who's going to go to university, to which university, to which course in which university, and so on. 
And at that level, one is also seeing the impact of globalization, what jobs are available to whom, and that's among the reasons why we are seeing a much more of this than we used to. Hmm. Uh, I mean, again, globally, beyond Africa, we are now seeing... It used to be the case that Scandinavia was the ideal place to be a child and possibly a parent, that people would trust schools and schooling was enough. But now we're seeing uh, the encroachment of the private sector, the shadow education sector, even in Scandinavia, in Denmark, Mm. Norway, Sweden, Finland... And so that's, again, underlining this is a global phenomenon for different reasons, but, but also for some extent the same reasons, that families want the best for their children, and it's a question about how do my children get ahead and what's necessary to, to advance. And uh, in some cases, it's not so extreme in Scandinavia. There, there is still a welfare state. Um, but in other parts of the world, you're uh, failing even at the starting line. If everybody else is getting shadow education except you, then forget about these empty promises of education is free and education is the vehicle for advancement. It's not. Mm. You're screened out even at the beginning. And, of course, there's different types of shadow education, some of higher quality than others. Correct. And that's, again, back to the social inequalities of it. Yeah. So, I mean, the other thing that it reminded me of was uh, the book by Michael Sandel, his new one on t- the tyranny of meritocracy, which I think you are reading right now and I've, I've read as well. Um, and it makes, I, I'm just wondering, you know, what are the connections between the, the sort of rise of shadow education globally, but also this notion of meritocracy where, where we sort of expect um, to be rewarded for the effort we put into something. And so education, if you put the effort into education, then you will be rewarded with, you know, better degrees, maybe better jobs, higher salaries, you know, whatever it is. Um, You know, is there an interconnection do you see between meritocracy and some of what Michael Sandel was talking about, where meritocracy can actually become quite problematic because it becomes so individualistic and shadow education? Uh, glad you raised that. Uh, Sandel himself would say yes and does talk about shadow education in the United States. So that's again saying this is a global phenomenon to some extent, even in the United States. Okay, here we're discussing a book about Africa, but look, the nature of the phenomenon is all over the place and you can get private tutoring in the United States to help you with your SATs and everything else, and it's grown there and will continue to grow. So Um, it does come back to this question of merit and perceived merit and yes I deserve uh, I deserve the job I've got I deserve the income I've got because I worked hard for it but also because my parents paid the tutoring fees and uh, it's increasingly saying that society is stratified and uh, perhaps you actually don't deserve it as much as other people who've got brains and diligence but didn't have the money to pay the shadow education fees. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, given this wide-ranging phenomenon that seems to have become quite everyday in many societies and particularly in Egypt, it sounds like, um, in this case, what can governments 
and policymakers even begin to do? I mean, if banning shadow education, as you said previously, you know, doesn't necessarily work, what is it that they can do? The first thing they can do is put it on the table and recognize it. I just want to have better data. Uh, the book, the Africa book, to some extent is assembling a jigsaw puzzle from the pieces we've got, but there are a lot of pieces missing. Mm-hmm. And I would want to have much better data, and uh, we have data from SACMEC, the Southern and Eastern Africa Consortium for Monitoring Education Quality. We do not have comparable data from Francophone Africa, from PASEC. Governments are not good at collecting data on this, so I would want to have better data. I would want to have it in public discussion. I would want it to be discussed at all levels, ministry level, district level, school level. So school principals can do things on this thing. Uh, the great thing about being a school principal is that uh, the actors are known people, they're not just anonymous statistics. So if there are corruption elements and so on, that can be put on the table. Um, let it be taken out of the shadows and at least discussed, talked about. Then there are some other things that can be done legislatively. Uh, in the book I suggest that a place to start would be to say that teachers cannot, should not, tutor their existing students. So that notion that I talked about with teachers deliberately short-changing their regular classes in order to promote the private class, there will still be trading operations. I'll tutor your students if you tutor mine. Okay, that will still happen. But at least let's start with prohibition of teachers tutoring their own students. Uh, There are other things that can be done for regulating the tutorial companies so that they don't engage in false advertising, that the fee structures are looked at, that the quality is looked at. There are parts of the world, uh, actually China has turned out to be a good model for this. The Chinese authorities, after ignoring the phenomenon for a long time, have now started to take it very seriously in terms of regulations and follow through on those regulations so that they're more than pieces of paper. So there are things that governments can do, but the starting point is to take it out of the shadows and to actively discuss it with all the stakeholders, with the teachers' unions, with parents' bodies, with uh, different departments of government with the taxation people, as you've just mentioned, and so on. Well, Mark Bray, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed, and it's always a pleasure to talk. Thank you, Will. It is a pleasure to talk with you, too. Mark Bray is the director of the Center for International Research in Supplementary Tutoring at East China Normal University in Shanghai and UNESCO Chair in Comparative Education at the University of Hong Kong. His latest book is Shadow Education in Africa, A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Lushi Guaba, Fatih Akhtas, Ing Jung Cho, Obafemi Ngunle, Diang Jian, Joe Fei, Annabella Boteng, Anya Lin, and Phyllis Menashe. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, 
and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Freshhead by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.